0: Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Matthew 28. Give your ear to God's gospel. And as they, that is the two women, the two Marys, went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Got two amens on that one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Your word for for Matthew's gospel and for this rich teaching at the end of his gospel. Help us to understand it, to appropriate it, to believe it, and to go from here doing it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's always tricky when there are amens in the text, and we say amen after it's finished. So. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. We'll be there most of the time. Again, I encourage you, I want to keep encouraging you to bring your Bibles to church, to have them open during the sermon, to be looking and listening at the Word of God as it is taught to you, as it's proclaimed to you. And uh, it's a good way to become familiar with your Bible. Sometimes there's flipping around during the sermon to see what other passages say and what, what bearing they have on our text. We might do that once today. But we need to have our noses in God's Word. It is our life. It's a living Word, and it feeds us. And if I'm not feeding you from the Word, then I'm not really feeding you. So bring your Bible and make sure that I'm preaching the truth. Philosopher, professor, broadcaster, and author, C.E.M. Jode, was once asked, of all the past figures in history, Who would he most like to meet? And if he had a chance to meet this historical figure, what would he like to ask him? Professor Jode chose Jesus as the person he would like to meet. And the question that he said that he wanted to ask Jesus is the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? That's the question he wanted to ask. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? That's the question. If you were a Jew living in the first century, this was the burning issue, the new burning issue. And there had never been a burning issue like it. Everyone was talking about it. It was the central question that separated the church that Matthew served from the synagogue down the street. Both of which were made up of Scripture reading Jews. The question of whether Jesus rose from the dead divided Christians and Jews. In the first century, it was the thing that divided them. And we can overhear that debate in the undertones of Matthew 28, which was written in the first century. Matthew 28 is more than just a retelling of the resurrection of Jesus. As we saw last week, it's a humorous account of the resurrection, it's ironic. The women in this scene are more courageous than the rough and tough Roman guards. Jesus is supposed to be dead. The Roman guards were there to make sure He stayed dead and in the tomb. But when they see the angel, the guards fall down, it says, as dead men. The soldiers are dead while Jesus is alive. And did you notice... Did you notice who the first heralds of the good news are in this passage? We're the first ones to go and announce or proclaim the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, I asked that question somewhat rhetorically, but there are two reasonable answers to this question. We're going to think about this for a minute. The most obvious answer is that it's the two women, the two Marys who are the first ones to go and announce the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. After all, verse 7 says that the angel told them to go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And then verse 8 says that the two women went out quickly, obediently, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And then verse 10 says that, they, that on their way to bring this report to the disciples, they met Jesus who reinforced what the angel told them? Jesus told the women in verse 10 Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So it's reasonable to think that these two Marys were the first ones to go and announce the good news of Christ's resurrection. But look at verse 11. Verse 11 suggests that while these women were on their way to meet the disciples, the Roman soldiers were in Jerusalem announcing the good news to the chief priests. Verse 11. Now while the women were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests, what? All the things that had happened. So think about what verse 11 is saying. First people to go and declare the facts about The angel, the empty tomb, are unbelieving Roman soldiers. And the first people to hear the resurrection message are the Jewish leaders who hate Jesus, who killed him three days earlier. And what did these guards announce to the chief priests? Verse 11 says they reported all the things that had actually happened. They didn't make up a story. They reported what they saw. They were eyewitness accounts. They reported the truth. They conveyed to the Jewish authorities everything they had witnessed. Which is everything we read about in the first eight verses of Matthew 28. So it's not difficult to imagine since we have an account of what happened. It's not difficult to imagine how the conversation might have gone when these panicking guards came rushing in where the chief priests were. As soon as the guards came in, the chief priests might have said, you know, hey, what's the deal? Why have you left your post? Why aren't you at the tomb? Making sure Jesus stays inside. And we can imagine what their response was since we're told what they reported. And we have verses 1-8. to Might have gone something like this. Yes, sir, we understand, but you see there was this great earthquake. And an angel showed up and rolled back the stone from the door. And then he sat on the stone. And we were so afraid, we just froze up. We were shaking like leaves. We were like dead men before the angel. They may have left that part out. I don't know. There were these two women... Two female followers of Jesus. The angel told them not to be afraid. He said that Jesus, the crucified one, was no longer in the tomb. He said that Jesus had been raised from the dead just as He said He would do. He encouraged the women to look at the empty tomb. And He's not there. And then He commissioned them to go back and bring word to Jesus' disciples about what had happened And where to meet him? That he is risen from the dead. He's not in the tomb anymore. It would have gone something like that, something close to that, because again, verse 11 says they reported all the things that had happened. So the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus dead most are the first ones to hear the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. He who sits in the heavens laughs. In verses 8 to 11, we find two groups of messengers. Two missionary units, we might say loosely. Two groups of people who witness the resurrection reality and then who go off to announce the resurrection message to other people. One group is the guards, the other group is the women. The two Marys. In verses 8-10, to 10, as we just went over, the women rush off to announce the good news to the disciples as they were told to do by the angel and then Jesus. In verse 11, the guards enter the city to announce the same news to the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. They're announcing the same resurrection message. And Matthew puts these in parallel. He even uses the same loaded verb to describe the announcement that both the men and the, so, the, the women and the soldiers make to their respective audiences. The Greek word is apangello. Now the word for angel is ongelos. And the word apangello is, has the same cognate, the same root. And so to apangello, is to be an angel or a messenger. It's a pregnant word. It means to announce something, to announce news, to declare a message, to go and declare a message. And the verb is used three times in verses 8, 9, and 10 to describe what the women do. They gelo, His disciples. They run and report or they tell are the verbs that are used in our English translations. Tell. Report. Declare. So these women are messengers who have been sent on a mission to announce the good news of Christ's resurrection. Well, Matthew uses the same pregnant, significant, strong verb in verse 11 to describe the report that the guards bring to the chief priests. It says they came into the city and reported to the chief priests, all the things that had happened. And the word reported is from that same Greek verb, apangello. These Roman soldiers are announcing the same good news. Telling these Jewish leaders what happened. So within minutes, after the resurrection of Jesus, we see human messengers running to announce the good news. The new creation The good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. The resurrection message is spreading immediately. And its very first messengers are women and Roman soldiers. God is weaving a wonderful story. Let's look back at verse 9 and walk through the passage a little bit more systematically. Verse 9 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. The word rejoice in verse 9 has a double meaning. In most other English translations, it gets translated as greetings or hello, which is really what it means here in this context. In Greek, the, the verb rejoice is also used as a greeting. So in some contexts, it can literally mean rejoice, be joyful. But when it's used in a greeting-type situation, it means something more like greetings. Hi, hello, or as one, trans, one version translates it, good morning. In this case, it was in the morning. But we need to understand that there is a double meaning going on here. At one level, this Greek greeting is what we would just consider a cheerful Hello, with a smile on our face. But on another level, the Greek word for this type of greeting does echo the great joy of the women in verse 8. Jesus has now lifted their joy to a new magnitude. And notice what the women do in verse 9. They fall down at Jesus' feet and they worship him. This is a significant detail because Matthew's gospel makes it plain that only God is to be worshipped. When Satan tempted Jesus, back in Matthew 4, he told Jesus, all these kingdoms of the world I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And what was Jesus' response? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. What's it mean then that the two Marys and a little later the eleven disciples bow down and worship Jesus in Matthew 28 and He doesn't tell them to stop. He doesn't rebuke them as angels do when people worship them. What's it mean that the wise men bowed down to worship Jesus back in Matthew 2? Matthew is telling us that Jesus is not a mere human. He is God. God in the flesh. In Matthew 28, He's God in the resurrected flesh. And verse 9 doesn't just highlight the divinity of Christ. It equally emphasizes His humanity yes they worship him but they also grab a hold of him in verse 9 the resurrected son of God is physical tangible he's not he's not a disembodied spirit these two women don't encounter a ghost they encounter a man and they're clinging to his feet The risen Jesus has resurrected feet that can be clung to by his followers, by his worshipers. The Christian faith is not an ethereal religion. I want you to turn with me to 1 John so we can see how important this truth is in the Bible, especially to the Apostle John when he's writing His epistle. This is how he starts out his letter. The first letter of John. 1 John 1. I'm going to read the first few, three or four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Notice the senses here. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. And our hands have handled Talks about how we they encountered Jesus, the living word who had he made himself manifest, and we heard him and we touched him, we saw him, we looked upon him, used all these different different words to talk about the physicality of Jesus, the, the realness, tangibility. Well, back in Matthew 28, verse. 10 we need to meditate a few minutes on the graciousness of the risen Christ toward his weak and sinful disciples consider the gracious message that Jesus sends to his disciples by way of these two women tells the two Marys in verse 10 don't be afraid go and tell my brethren to go to, to Galilee Jesus is really acting like a shepherd, a caring shepherd here. His first thought after being raised from the dead, encountering the first people to see Him raised from the dead, His first thought is for His scattered little flock. Go tell my brethren, go tell my brothers, Comfort them with these words. He didn't say, go and tell my weak-kneed, faint-hearted, former disciples. He said, go and tell my brothers. This is a familial word. There's something, something deeply poignant about these words that we can't miss. We need to think about. His disciples had shown that they were frail, faithless, prayerless, and overly concerned about self-preservation. But still, Jesus considers them his brethren. He comforts them just as Joseph, you remember in Genesis, comforted his brothers who had sold him into Egyptian slavery. The disciples had fallen short of their profession Of faith in Jesus. They had yielded to the fear of man. And yet still Christ calls them his brethren. Glorious as Jesus is. A a conqueror over death. Hell. The grave. Glorious and mighty. And holy. As the risen son of God is. He is still meek and lowly of heart even after His resurrection. When the risen Jesus calls His disciples brethren, brothers, the humility of God is on display. And Jesus doesn't just call His 11 disciples His brethren. He also says that you are His brethren. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is our older brother who is not ashamed to call us His brethren. Even though you fall short of your profession of faith in Jesus, even though you yield to the fear of man, even though you are oftentimes frail and faithless and prayerless and overly concerned about self-preservation, even though you are weak need, and faint of heart in your walk with Christ. The message that He wants you to hear is that you are His brethren. You belong to Him. And He belongs to you, and He's not ashamed of that. Let this encourage you. Let this little phrase encourage you to trust in Christ And to stop fearing all the things that you're afraid of. Our Savior is our older brother who never gets embarrassed by his little brothers and sisters. He pities our infirmities. He does not despise you because of your weaknesses and your real sins. He knows your failures better than you do and he does not cast you away. In fact, he died for you knowing all of this, knowing full well who you are and what you do. Well, we've already considered verse 11 at length. Verse 11 is where the guards run into Jerusalem and announce the resurrection message to the Jewish leaders. And verses in verse 12, the Jewish leaders consult with one another and they agree to give hush money to these guards. They don't want them going around announcing the resurrection message to anyone else. Verse 13, the Jewish leaders make up a story for the guards to tell people. Tell people that His disciples came at night and stole His body while you were asleep and you didn't know it. You you conked out. All of you conked out at the same time. That's your story. Here's your money, and we'll smooth things over with the governor if he hears about this. Consider the links to which these Jewish leaders are willing to keep themselves from, the links to which they go, to keep themselves from believing in Jesus and to keep a lid on the truth. What's interesting is that the story they made up doesn't even hold water. It's incoherent. The obvious question that any thinking person would ask when they heard this explanation is, well, if you guys were sleeping, all of you were sleeping, how do you know the disciples came and stole the body? How can you be sure what happened if you were conked out, if you slept through it? Plus, how, how did you guys get off scot-free if you fell asleep on the job? Weren't you guys in trouble? Somebody covering for you? The story doesn't really add up. It has internal contradictions. It's only believable to those who are desperate not to believe in Jesus. The lies of the devil are only believable to those who are desperate not to believe and follow Jesus. Sometimes those lies are believable to us when we're not in the mood to follow Jesus. The intellectual lies of the evil one never add up. They always fail to account for the most basic and obvious realities that you don't have to go to school to learn, They only make sense to those whose hearts are hell-bent on avoiding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it was during the first hour after the resurrection of our Lord, and that's how it is today. We see it on display regularly in the world, in our universities, in our media, in the heart of every unbeliever. Sometimes we see vestiges of it in our own hearts. The world is still filled with corrupt institutions and individuals who exchange massive amounts of money oftentimes to propagate lies about reality. And especially lies about the resurrection and reign of King Jesus. Secularism can only be true if Jesus is still dead. Therefore, Jesus must still be dead. That's how the God-hating sex work. And they will tell whatever stories they must and make up whatever facts are necessary to make sure people believe this lie. This is the agenda of the world that exists outside the church, outside of Christian homes, outside of Christ. We are bombarded by lies, false narratives, just like this one in verse 13. So parents, equip your children to stand firm on the word of God. And to remain steadfast in their faith in the risen Jesus Christ. The best way to do this is not by giving them a bunch of apologetics material to read that has its place. The best thing to do is to teach them what it means to know Jesus. To know Christ personally. To draw close to Him. And to walk with Him. In the power of His Spirit feeding on His Word. Knowing Jesus through His Word and Spirit, knowing Him intimately, personally, is far better than knowing how to deconstruct all the arguments against Him. If you have to pick, one is far better than the other. When you meet and experience the risen Jesus and His people, the way that these women did, all the lies about Him lose their luster. In the remaining time, I want to make some observations about verses 16 to 20. And these closing verses in Matthew's Gospel deserve their own sermon And Lord willing, someday we'll come back to it and I'll do better justice than I will today. Some of the most important features of this passage, we'll have to wait for a future discussion, a future sermon. There's so many things, there's so many echoes of the Old Testament, Um, a summary of Matthew's gospel to this point in many ways. But we can observe three things today in closing. First, consider the honor that God bestows on Jesus. All authority or power has been given to me, Jesus says, in both in heaven and on earth. Paul declares the same truth in Philippians 2, which we looked at on Good Friday. Philippians 2.9 says, God has highly exalted him and given him A name that is above every name. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus became God after the resurrection. Now he finally is exalted and he has this authority, this power. This statement doesn't take away from the truth of Christ's divinity. He is God. He's always been God. It is simply a declaration that Jesus, as the son of man, remember he is both God and man, has been appointed heir of all things. This man has been appointed heir of all things, both in heaven and on earth. Now a man has been exalted high. And this God-man is now the mediator between heaven and earth, between God and man, Christ is the God-man who has the keys to death and hell. He is the anointed high priest who alone can forgive sins. He is the fountain of living water in whom alone we can be cleansed. He is the crucified King and risen Savior who alone can give repentance and remission of sin. In Him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He is the way, the truth, the life, the door, the good shepherd, and the altar of refuge. Whoever has Jesus has life. Whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. Whoever has Jesus has all of God. Whoever does not have Jesus has none of God. The risen Christ is King of heaven and King of earth. That means King of everything that has ever been created. There is no reality more central to your life. No truth more important for you to submit your life to. The kingship, the lordship of your Savior Jesus Christ. Second, observe The obedience that Jesus requires of his disciples. If you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you must do, observe, obey everything he has commanded. That's what, verse 20, Jesus says that his followers must be taught to obey all of his commandments. According to Jesus, the only people who are to be counted as true Christians are those who live in obedience to his word. Who strive to do the things that he has laid out for his people. The water of baptism, the bread and wine of communion by themselves cannot save anyone's soul. It profits you nothing to come to church to confess the creeds, to sing the songs, and to affirm the gospel if your religion goes no further than those things. What does the rest of your life look like? What does your daily conduct look like in public and in private, at home and at work? Is the Sermon on the Mount your rule and standard? Do you strive to copy the example of Christ to imitate your Lord? Are you cultivating in your soul all the things that Jesus commands in Scripture? The clearest evidence that you are a real disciple of Jesus is your obedience to Him. Not what you say. So much is what you do. Faith without works is dead. Faith without fruit is false. Your obedience cannot save you. But Jesus still requires your obedience. It's not optional. It's important for you to know that Jesus is merciful and kind and patient with you. He doesn't require perfect obedience. In fact, He's extremely gracious when it comes to judging or evaluating your works. Your works of obedience. Your fruitfulness as a Christian. The mercy abounds. The abounding mercy that saved you continues to abound when it comes to your good works that are required. Nevertheless, He does require from you Something that can legitimately be looked at and called obedience, faithfulness, growth in godliness. He says in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. First John 2, 3, by this we can be sure that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, think about that. Do you claim to know Jesus? Knowing Jesus and being saved, being a Christian, those are all ways of talking about the same thing. Do you want to, make, you want to be sure that you've come to know Jesus? Well, John says keep His commandments. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If the commandments of Christ seem burdensome to you, if this feels like I'm throwing a huge weight on you, then you're on the wrong track. The yoke of Christ is easy. His burden is light. If you're seeing it a different way, you're not seeing it the way He sees it. His commandments bring freedom from burdens. Christ's commandments give freedom to you the believer, the way train tracks give freedom to trains. Train tracks give trains the freedom to do what they were created to do. Train tracks are not burdensome. They're freeing. Without tracks, trains would never be able to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. The train that's off the tracks is not a free train. That's a disaster. Christ's commandments in Scripture give humans the freedom to do what they were created to do. Now, of course, the law cannot save you. If you are lost in your sins, then you cannot save yourself and be freed from your sin by doing a lot of things, by obeying a lot of commandments. You must first trust in Christ and put your faith in Him. But then when you do that, you take on His yoke, which is not a burden. It is freeing. Without the commandments of Christ, apart from doing them, you cannot fulfill, fill up, fill out the purpose for which God has created you. You have been created and then saved from your sin by God to be a fruitful Obedient follower of Jesus. Third and finally. Look at the gracious promise that Jesus ends with. He says to to his disciples. I'm with you always even to the end of the age or even to the end of the world. It's impossible to think of words that could provide more comfort, more strength to believers than this promise at the end of the Great Commission. Even though Jesus was about to leave His disciples and return to heaven, the disciples were not to think that they had been orphaned or abandoned, deserted. Their Lord would be with them always he would be ever with them they wouldn't be able to see him but they would they could always know that he was there nonetheless brothers and sisters brethren christ is with us always this is a truth that we don't think about enough he's with you wherever you go closer to you than the air you breathe he is with you daily to pardon to forgive you to sanctify you and strengthen you to convict you and to encourage you to keep you and to guide you he's with you in sorrow and in joy in sickness and in health in life and in death he's with you in time and in eternity in this world and in the world to come What stronger comfort, consolation could you desire than this? Is there anything that should comfort you more than this? Whatever happens to you, you will never be completely alone, completely friendless, no matter what. Christ is and He always will be with you. You might walk Through the valley of the shadow of death. As David did. But with David, you'll be able to say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you, Lord Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, are with me. The the promises of Scripture are bound up in the message of Of Jesus' resurrection. All the promises are yes and amen in the risen Christ. Because you belong to the Lord Jesus. You can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall always be with the Lord. It's not just something that's true now. It's true forever. We shall always be with the Lord, Paul says. If you know that Jesus will always be with you and that you will always be with Jesus, what do you have to fear? What are you worrying about? Believe the resurrection message and stop being afraid. Stop living in anxiety and fear. Follow Jesus and let him take care of the rest. Let's ask for God's help in doing this. God, we praise you for the gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection. Thank you for uniting us to the risen Savior, for giving us his life, his resurrection life. Help us to walk in the newness of that life. Help us to take upon us your easy yoke. And to do what you've commanded. To glorify your name. We need your help to do this. We know, we confess that it is a gift from you. So help us this week to walk as your children. As disciples of of the risen Lord. Amen.